Attaining icon status is no easy task. Becoming an icon in two separate markets in two different leagues is almost unheard of, yet today's guest has succeeded in accomplishing both. Hey, hey, what do you say? It's my pleasure to welcome the former voice of the Springfield Indians, the current voice of the Carolina Hurricanes, and future Hall of Famer John Forslund to the penalty box. Boy, oh boy, are you people in for a treat. Buckle up. Let's go. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drop, the puck Just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. So let me tell you a story. So if you're an Islander fan now, you know their AHL affiliate is the Bridgeport Sound Tigers. Around the time that I started paying attention to uh, the minor league affiliations, they had a minor league affiliate in the Central League, uh, the Indianapolis Checkers. And after Indianapolis, uh, they moved the affiliate to Springfield, Massachusetts. But Springfield had a team. The Islanders just took up the affiliation, first with a split affiliation with Minnesota, and then they took on the full affiliation. Um, and that was uh, in my mid-teenage years, mid to late teenage years. So uh, at that point, I couldn't get enough hockey. And because the American League and the minors were pretty new to me at that time, I couldn't get enough. And keep in mind, we're talking mid to late 80s so there isn't any internet um, there's no satellite tv there's no uh, hockeyfights.com there's no nothing in terms of internet highlights or, or anything so as i discussed in the interview um, it's pretty much just getting the hockey news every week back when it was readable and um, just looking at the stats in the back and getting to know the players by name uh, and then for someone like myself, it was getting the uh, hockey fight tapes uh, at the end of every season. But again, the minor league stuff was uh, very few and far between and uh, sometimes difficult to come by back then as uh, compared to the NHL stuff. So uh, everything was done uh, on a much smaller scale than it could be done now or, or compared to um, accessibility to NHL footage and NHL stats and literature and basically everything. Uh, one day, I don't remember exactly when or I don't remember exactly the season, but I'm going through the channels on the TV and there's a show called Rinkside. And um, all of a sudden, I'm, 
it's uh, the AHL show and they have uh, highlights and they show a lot of fights and they do some interviews and uh, it is like holy shit this is just a great show so for uh, for someone like me that was can't miss tv that was um recording every episode and watching it a couple of times and scanning the guide on the television for when the next episode was going to come on and i honestly could not get enough of uh, ringside and as i think back now uh to the episodes it was just goals and hits and fights and humor and um, whoever, whoever it was, the producer of the show, the editor, whoever edited it, I mean, they could not have done a better job. And then one day they, uh, start advertising a VHS tape that they're going to sell called Gunning for the Bigs. And that was, Hey, I, I have to get this. And, um, it was, you know, <laughs> go to the post office, get a money order, send away for it. And then when it comes, then you just watch the tape and watch the tape and watch the tape and you basically know it by heart. So, um, Ringside was an amazing show, um, and like I said, as far as now the information uh, information age, you, if you're of this generation, you have no idea just how hard it was to find this stuff. And when you found something like Ringside, and I think anyone that enjoyed the show that's of a certain age will will uh, agree with me on that. It was uh, it was amazing, and because the Springfield Indians broadcast a lot of their home games on local television in Springfield, they were featured quite a bit on ringside. So um, you'd get the uh, Springfield highlights, you'd get uh, a lot of their goals, you'd get, you know, <laughs> they always had tough teams. So you'd see a lot of their fights. Rod Dahlman was a mainstay on ringside. And, um, and one thing I remember from the Calder Cup season uh, on ringside was it was pretty much every week as far as goaltending goes it was uh, Jeff Hackett or JC Bergeron I remember uh, those two guys being featured almost every week so uh, it just just thinking about it now uh, just puts a smile on my face so what ringside did was it put faces to the names that I read in the back of the hockey news or that I saw in the season ending stats and it gave me um, uh, a visual to some of the future Islanders, um, future Islander tough guys, future Islander grinders, future Islander goalies, anything like that. And it just, like I said, it opened up a whole new world for me. The guy who I heard narrate the uh, Springfield Indians highlights was a man named John Forsland. And uh, John Forsland uh, was someone that I enjoyed listening to. And he had his catchphrase, hey, hey, what do you say? And he just seemed very colorful. Uh, but not at the expense of being thorough and knowledgeable. So it was just someone that I just kept an eye on. Um, growing up, I had always wanted to be a sportscaster. And um, I didn't realize the ins and outs of the business. I didn't realize, um, and l let's be honest, I don't know if it still happens now, but especially back then, there was a certain amount of nepotism. But that is not why I didn't pursue the career. Um, it's, uh, it's a tough business to break into and you have to pay your dues. And uh, I didn't want to pay my dues. I wanted to go right from college to uh, the NHL booth or Major League Baseball booth. And I didn't want to do college sports or local sports or anything like that. So that was just uh, being stubborn on my part. And obviously now, since I'm not in the play-by-play -play business or the color commentary business, obviously, uh, you can see I did not put the work in. 
Um, but that was just me being uh, a doofus because uh, I didn't want to do the other sports. I just wanted to jump right to the pros, which of course is never done, but uh, I didn't want to hear it back then. So um, I always enjoyed listening to certain broadcasters. Uh, if you know me, you know uh, how much I love Jigs McDonald. And um, everybody that uh, is a hockey fan has to love Mike Emmerich. I think um, Gary Thorne, I always enjoyed Gary Thorne uh, on the Devil broadcast. I thought he's excellent. So for me, once, once um, I got to watch uh, more and more highlights of Springfield, and um, in 89-90, they made the Calder Cup. They made the Calder Cup finals. And the deciding game was actually broadcast on Sports Channel, I think, a week after the, um, week after the game was played. And I still have the VHS tape in my garage, uh, start to finish. And that was the first time I had ever heard John do a game from start to finish. And he, he just has a great style. He, he tells the story and um, he doesn't make it about himself, which I, I think some announcers do. Uh, John wasn't like that. He let the pictures do the talking and he added to it and I thought it was fantastic. Um, a few years later, he uh, ends up in Hartford uh, and then Hartford moves to Carolina. He goes with them. He does national games and now you can hear John Forsland uh, almost where, wherever you can put on any hurricane game, you can hear him. He's on NBC SN a lot, and uh, he's just honestly to me, he is um, the cream of the crop right now uh, as far as play-by-play uh, -play men go. And uh, I am not, as I told him before the interview, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I'm not pumping your tires. Uh, my Mount Rushmore of hockey play-by-play -play guys is, as I just said, Mike Emmerich, Jiggs McDonald. I love Gary Thorne. And John Forsland, those are my top four guys. John does a great job, and um, and I'm like I said, not not pumping his tires. He's great. The um, the connection between that Calder Cup winning game and the story that I actually started to tell you about eight minutes ago, um, because I was getting more and more into the team, and uh, I always like to get hockey jerseys. So one day I, I'd say, well, I'm going to call the team and see where I can buy a Springfield Indians jersey. And um, I call the team and I got someone on the phone. I know it wasn't John. But, um, and I'm asking them, hey, can you give me the phone number of a place to call uh, to buy a jersey? And they said, well, you know, if you're coming to the game tonight, you can buy one in the arena. If not, you can do this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I said, uh, I'm calling from New York. Uh, I'm not, I won't be able to get to the game tonight. And uh, I, believe it was, I believe it was a woman. And she said, you know, if we win tonight, we win the Calder Cup. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's pretty much all I needed to hear. I said, all right, well, you know what? I said, give me the phone number of the uh, store where I could buy something, and maybe I'll wait, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll see what I can do. So, again, this is 1990. There's no map quest. There's no ways. There's no nothing. It's pretty much these giant poster maps. And... Um, I get one of those out, and I'm like, all right. And then I have no idea how long it's going to take to get there. I have no idea. And um, I call my friend Mike, and I tell him basically what happened. And uh, he's like, are you thinking about going? I'm like, yeah, I think I am. He's like, let's go. And I was like, all right, let's go. So um, we got in the car. I believe it was a 7.30 game. Let's say it was 7, 7.30. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was. But I believe it was a Friday. 
if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was a Friday, and we hit traffic. We, we pretty much flew up 95 uh, to 91, I believe is how you get there, 91. And um, we pretty much flew for maybe the first two, two hours, two hours, 15 minutes. And then that last 45 minutes to an hour, we just hit bumper to bumper. And it took us over three hours to get there. Well, we parked the car and um, lo and behold, the first period is over by the time we get there. Oh, one thing, one, one thing I forgot to, uh, to say, of course, which is vital to the story. When the woman told me that if they, had the op- if they won, they would win the Calder Cup, I said, well, the game has to be sold out, right? I would think so. And she goes, well, at 5 o'clock, we, we put a few more, we're going to put a few more tickets on sale. And that was, I was like, okay, perfect. So now, of course, we get there after the first period. There aren't any more tickets to buy. And we're in the lobby going... Fuck, we drove all the way up here. What are we going to do? So, um, so I, think, I think when we got there, there was a minute or two left in the period. While the period ends, I knock on the door to get uh, attention of a security guard. They come out. A security or usher, I don't, I don't remember. And uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, and I said, listen, um, I hope you can help us out. We just drove up from Long Island. Uh, we hit major traffic. Um, we don't have tickets. I spoke to someone earlier. They said tickets, the additional tickets would probably go on sale around 5 o'clock. We thought we'd be here by then. Obviously, we weren't. We just got here. I remember showing my license saying, look, I'm not lying here. We're from Long Island. Is there anything we can do? And I remember the person saying, we're completely sold out. There's not a seat to be had. I'll tell you what. I'll let you in. You just can't sit anywhere. And we were like, no fucking problem. So um, they let us in, and we kind of meandered around. And um, I don't remember if we actually found seats or not. I don't, I don't remember. But wherever we were, uh, if we stood, if we sat in the, on the aisle, I, I honestly don't remember what we did to watch the game. But we watched the game. And um, it was the most fun I've had at a game because it was my first AHL game live. And my first AHL game live was a Calder Cup overtime game where the team I was rooting for won. And it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I'd never been to a championship game at that point. So to experience this was, I mean, it was such a thrill. Um, I remember after, um, after the guys, they, you know, the game's over, they, Jeff Rolchek scores the goal, they go nuts. And um, I remember Chris Pryor, he starts taking the player's sticks and going uh, by the glass and he starts handing the fans uh, some of the game, the game sticks. And we were nowhere near the glass, so there was no chance of getting one. I actually remember people were taking the armrests off the chairs and for some reason, and they were throwing them on the ice. I don't know why, I guess... You know, if it's not nailed down, I, I honestly don't know. But I remember one falling short of the ice, falling at my feet, and I'm like, I'm going to take this. I don't know why. I'm 19 years old. It was, like, just the coolest thing. I took the armrest. I don't have it anymore. Um, but, you know, after the game, you go out on the street, and everybody was just so happy. It was just a party. And I remember walking to our car and, and – uh, 
the streets were just cars were stopped in the middle of the street. Everyone's happy, high fiving everyone. It was just an amazing time. So that was my first um, my first AHL game. The Springfield Indians won the Calder Cup, and then the year later, uh, the Springfield Indians were the affiliate of the Hartford Whalers. The Islanders had uh, moved their affiliation up to Troy, uh, and they were the Capital District Islanders. So it was the last game for the Springfield Indians as a New York Islanders affiliate. So I think all those things combined um, really just, I have such an affection for the Indians and I have such an affection for that 89-90 squad. And uh, that's why as far as this show goes, I really am going to try my best to interview everyone that was on that team that was a fighter or played a physical role and they had no shortage of those guys. So uh, it's sort of um, a goal of mine. And, uh, and Dean Ewan was, was on that team. Um, as I said, I was there the night the cup was won, and he wasn't. But uh, he got twins out of the deal, so he actually was the winner that night. But, um, so he was on that team. And there's a bunch of other guys that played on that team that I really, really am going to try my best to get on the show um, I just love that 89-90 Indian squad. So uh, this interview with John was actually the first interview I was able to do in person. And uh, I don't have a tremendous setup. I have one mic and a laptop. So some of the volume, um, it gets a little low at times, but it's still um, audible. So I just I apologize for that in advance. But um, you can still hear everything that we said. Uh, we did the interview at uh, Long Island Marriott uh, on Friday. The Hurricanes were in town today. Um, so I got to speak to John for a little over an hour um, while the team was at practice. Uh, it was great to sit down with them. Like I said, we had spoken a few times uh, via the Internet, via text, and to actually meet him. He's just such a nice guy and you know, just a, an encyclopedia as far as hockey goes. So um, it, was, it was a real treat for me. And something I wanted to do for the longest time, and uh, I am so so happy that I was able to do it. And um, the other cool part about um, Carolina coming to town, not that they have any physical players, uh, which is par for the course NHL 2020, but uh, Dean Schnauth is an assistant coach with Carolina, and I've known Dean a very long time, and. Uh, I love the guy. I love him as a player. I, I love him. Uh, I love him as a coach. I love sitting down and talking to him because um, he just. He, first of all, it, you, we always managed to talk about the good old days. Um, we spoke for a few minutes on Friday. We ended up talking about both uh, Springfield days and uh, WHL days, and it just you can't really talk to people like for myself here on the island it's really hard to find someone that knows anything about those days to have a conversation with and yet here I am talking to a guy who lived it who who won memorial cups who won a calder cup and played a you know played a, a physical game and was a was a key part in the memorial cup championships and uh, you know played uh, almost all the playoff games for springfield again a key part so uh, and Dean is just such a personable guy. I love, I love talking to him, and uh, I wish I had more time to chat with him on Friday. But, um, but Dean is a perfect example of, and, and John and I get into this a little bit, um, with some of the fans 
where fa some fans are just so focused on numbers. And um, Dean was a first-round pick of the Islanders, and he had a really, really good career. If you look at his numbers, um, you know, to, to play as long as he did, uh, every time he played, he always had something to do with the game, but it didn't necessarily show up in the stats. Uh, defensive defenseman, hit, fought, he's a leader. Um, but again, if you don't watch the game, for, it's, it's kind of like football fans not understanding that how important the offensive line is. And, and you just the only time you notice the offensive line is when they give up a sack. So uh, Dean's not a stat guy. He's not a guy that's going to score 15, 20 goals from the point. Um, but you win with guys like him. And um, one of the things that I, I, don't th I don't think Dean will remember this conversation because at this point it was just an innocuous conversation a day or so after the game. The one thing that I remember most fondly about Dean's career with the Islanders was in a game against L.A., uh, Eric Lacroix laid a dirty hit on Dennis Vasky, and Vasky's face went uh, into the top of the boards where the boards meet the glass, that 90-degree uh, that angle. And Vasky's face, I mean, just hit it hard. And, and, you know, for Dean, it was a no-brainer. I'm sure he didn't even think about it. He saw his teammate getting taken advantage of dropped his gloves and, um, and took care of LaCroix. And it was just another day at the office. And I remember when I saw Dean a couple of days later, I'm like, man, you know, I just want to let you know um, that kind of stuff really resonates with a fan like myself. And, uh, you know, uh, to me, that's what makes someone like him invaluable. And, um, you know, like I said, there are some fans who are just focus on the numbers, but, you know, hockey's a team sport and, and it's full of intangibles. And, you know, uh, one of the things John and I touch on is is uh, Dean Chanel, Kevin Sheveldayoff, Dave Chizowski getting drafted in the first round three years in a row, and how some fans view them. And uh, I, I've de I've defended those draft picks for years, and I will continue to defend those draft picks. So, um, you know, if you look at Dean Chanel's numbers, you know, it seems like every year or most years he splits seasons between. Um, the National League and the American League. And uh, if you do the math, I believe he's the all-time penalty minute leader for Capital District, which I'm sure is something he'd rather not be because it meant that he spent uh, some time down there to accumulate those numbers. But what it says to me is, is a guy that was a first-round pick. And, you know, even if he did get discouraged uh, about being sent to the minors at various times in his career, he never gave up. He never stopped working. And honestly... Um, I think some of his best hockey was played uh, the last part of his career with the Bruins. So uh, I think definitely in terms of his fighting, his fighting was was spot on with the Bruins, actually. I think uh, uh, he was aggressive as fuck with the Bruins, and, he, and uh, he had some really good tilts with them, and that was the end of his career. So to me, um, again, I'm not pumping your tires, Dino, but uh, you know, a guy like Dean Chenowth, He's someone that I think uh, he's an inspiration in t for, for uh, young athletes in terms of you can come in with a certain amount of fanfare and if things don't work out for you right away at the start or you have obstacles to overcome like Dean did with some injuries, um, you just don't give up because you never know. And um, Dean is now a successful coach. Uh, once you're done scanning his playing statistics, if you look at his um, coaching statistics, he's been all over Western League. Um, you know, with the Islanders, with Carolina, 
um, in the American League, so he's been with a few different organizations. And you now, as far as as far as hockey X's and O's go, um, he, he again he doesn't take have to take a backseat to anybody, you know. And uh, so um, that's my little ramble. Back in the day, I would look forward to teams coming into the Coliseum because I would see players that I knew and players I was looking forward to seeing. And now it's pretty rare that um, anyone's coming in that, that resonates with me. But uh, surprisingly, the Carolina Hurricanes, probably one of the softer teams in the league, had two guys that I was anxious to see. So um, thank you, Carolina Hurricanes, for having uh, one of the best play-by-play -play guys ever in the business. And uh, thanks, Rod Brindamore, for hiring uh, Dean Chenouth because, uh, I mean, he, I, I'm thanking you as a fan, but, uh, you know, he's obviously solid addition to your staff. So um, I think I've, uh, I probably have spoken a little long now. Uh, it's been uh, almost 23 minutes of me yammering on. Uh, I will say one more thing. If you caught the Islander game today, uh, that was a high stick. Uh, and you know it was a high stick because um, <laughs> you have eyes. And also, if you notice, uh, both coaches... Uh, Rod Brindamore and Barry Trotz had called their players over and they were getting ready for the faceoff, uh, you know, in overtime because obviously, um, I don't know who scored it, Svechikov, I, I don't know, the, he's Russian, whatever. Um, his stick was, was high, it was a high stick. Anyone could see it. Um, even, like I said, Brindamore, his coach, was preparing for the faceoff and then lo and behold, uh, Toronto says, no, that's a good goal. So it, it was ridiculous, but um, it's so much so that my voice just cracked. But it was ridiculous. It was not a goal. And, um, you know, thankfully, the Islanders got one of those infamous loser points, and then the Rangers lost. And um, I don't know who else lost, but it ended up being an okay day for the Islanders. But uh, they better get their shit together, or else uh, they might not, be, uh, not, might not be a playoff team. And the other, last thing I'll say is uh, Matt Barzell, he really needs to control his stick. That high stick was uh, – uh, <laughs> he, he took a really bad high-sticking penalty at probably the worst possible time. So uh, um, control your stick, man. And um, no, no, here's the last thing. Fuck, let's get Ross Johnston back in the lineup. If I was the coach – and again – um, nobody wants me to coach over Barry Trotz. Nobody, 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 nobody wants me to coach over Barry Trotz. Barry Trotz forgot more in the last two seconds about hockey than I've known in my 49 years. But play this fucking guy. The guy's energy. He hits guys. Today would have been a perfect day, especially if you watch the game. That first period was sloppy as fuck on both for both teams. It was awful. Um, you get Ross out there, he starts nailing guys. And, you know, you never know what that does uh, for the Islanders in terms of momentum. And you also don't know what it does for Carolina because they really don't have anyone to match him. So um, this guy's got to play. I mean, Jesus Christ, get him out there. Fuck, you know, get it. <laughs> you play him once every two weeks and, uh, you know, and then the fans start whining, but uh, so be it. But um, anyway, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I hope you enjoy uh, listening to John Forslund. Guy's a fucking rock star in my eyes. And um, it was an honor talking to him. And uh, I guess that's it. So, uh, without further ado, the uh, former voice of the Springfield Indians, the current voice of the Carolina Hurricanes, 
Mr. John Forsland. I hope you people enjoy it. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. Today, it is an honor, and, and I, I don't say that lightly. It is an absolute honor to be speaking to the man I've admired for many years. Uh, I'm here today with the voice of the Carolina Hurricanes, Mr. John Forsland. Uh, I originally became familiar with John from a show called Rinkside, yeah. a great, great American Hockey League show. Uh, I was an AHL fan at that point, but it was really just the back of the hockey news or um, end of the year stats. But Rinkside actually brought American Hockey League highlights into my living room. And because Springfield, uh, Springfield Indians, which were the Islanders minor league team at the time, were on local television in Springfield, every episode was chock full of Indian highlights. So, as I said, this is a big deal for me. John Forslund, welcome to the penalty box. Thanks, Joe, it's my <laughs> pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an honor. So, um, we're gonna handle this interview two parts. We're gonna talk a little bit about John's career, and then we're gonna talk about some of the guys that he covered with the Indians. And uh, as much as I wanna hear about your career, you're, to me, you're the guy to talk to about these guys. So oh, I'm yeah. sure you have some good stories. Yeah, finally. So, um, when did you know that you wanted to be a broadcaster. I actually wanted to do your job growing up. That's cool. But I didn't want to put in the work because as a 16 and 17 year old, yeah. I knew everything there was to know. Yeah. So I didn't want to do high school sports or college sports. I figured I'd go to college, get my degree, and then of course the Islanders were going to hire me because I knew so much. Right. So I didn't, I didn't realize all the work that, yeah. that went into it, which is a part of another reason why I admire someone that's achieved what you've achieved so much is I know what goes into it. So. When did you first realize that you wanted to pursue this? Well, my first recollection of anything um, was in 1970. So I was eight years old when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. And when Bobby Orr scored <clears throat> that famous goal, you know, leaping through the air, I guess um, that's where I got the bug to, to maybe call the games because Dan Kelly was the announcer on CBS, Mother's Day. I was watching it by myself at my aunt's house and the rest of the family were elsewhere in the house. And I vividly remember that Sunday afternoon. But I remember his cadence, and I got hooked. And I, and I guess I developed a hobby. Um, the minor league team in Springfield, we were fans. We went to all the games. They were every Friday and Saturday night. Um, loved the teams. Uh, in 1971, they won the Calder Cup with Butch Goring being a key figure and Billy Smith in goal. Um, but I started honing my craft at that age. Around 12, I got a tape recorder. Um, I did the games off the television. I figured out how I was going to get my notes and prepare. I wasn't a great reader. My mom suggested, you know, you need to read more. I hated reading. So she said, read about hockey. And I, I, played, like I played baseball in, in high school and through college and that, and, and all the other, you know, football, basketball, neighborhood sports and all that. Um, but it wasn't that I was a hockey player. I, I was a fan, and I was a, I was, I was hooked by announcing it. I don't know why. So I would uh, do games off the TV. My dad would do color for me. Uh, his buddies would come and have a, have a beverage or two, watch the Bruins. Every game was on television. We had a parabolic antenna that could bring the games in from Boston, um, and I developed a style. And I used to do this, and my closest friends knew that I wanted to do this and would encourage me. But I always felt that, you know, there's no chance I'll ever do this. And when I was in high school, I kind of threw it by my guidance counselor, and she told me that it was a pie-in-the-sky type dream job. Do something. You can have that dream, but you better get something as a fallback. And that's kind of the direction I went in college. But college buddies encouraged me to take a course, which I did. And then that guy there 
kind of pointed me in the right direction, told me I had some talent, and, and then I believed him. And then I got a chance to work in the minor leagues, and, and then the rest is history, I guess. But that, that's how it all came about. That's awesome. Um, so my question that I'm going to try to stump you with, since you brought up the Bruins. Yeah. You're a Springfield kid. Yeah. You, I, that's Bruins country. Right. Who's the second best Bruin of all time? Because obviously, if I said who's the best Bruin right. of all time, everyone's going to say Bobby Orr. Bobby so Orr, as right. someone who's a lifelong hockey guy, yeah. even if it's someone that maybe numbers-wise isn't the best, who's yeah. like for me, my, my Islanders. Yeah. My number one Islander of all time, I think, is Dennis Pop. Uh -huh. And if you ask me who my number two was, I would probably say Brian Trotty. Yeah. So who's your number two Bruin? Well, you have to understand that by 1984. I disconnected. Okay. Okay. Because mm -hmm. even when I worked for Springfield, mm -hmm. the Islanders became my team. Right. Okay. Because okay. I had a, you know, obviously a, the affiliation was there, but I knew so many guys, and Mr. Torrey was so good to me, and Darcy, and Mr. Harbor, and all this. So uh, that were they were my team, mm -hmm. and the days of being a fan were gone. So I'll take it from you know '69 to '84. Right. And I think the most emotional I ever I ever became as a young boy was when Phil was traded, when Esposito was traded to the Rangers, yep. and I threw my street hockey stick through a bay window of a neighbor's house. Is that right? Yeah, my dad drove by and rolled down the window and said, they traded Esposito. And I said, to who? He goes, the Rangers. Oh. And then he drove down the hill to where our house was. I took my stick and I fired it like a, like a boomerang. The thing went around and around and went right through a bay window, which I had a bay. Oh, uh, my, our friends, they were good about it and everything. But I was, I was emotional about that. I was a big Phil Esposito fan, um, Terry O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, central to all of it was Jerry Cheevers. Yeah. I think Jerry Cheevers, is, uh, he's a Hall of Fame goalie, but he often gets overlooked when they talk about great goalies. And he was a phenomenal goalie because he played behind some teams, a lot like Grant Fear did, that uh, liked to have a good time yeah. and played a little bit loosey-goosey. And uh, I've always felt, and, and, and I worked with Mike Milbury the other night, and he, he agreed with this, like the Bruins should have won four or five consecutive Stanley Cups if they didn't have such a good time. Yeah. And so they, they won in 70, they won in 72. But then they had those upsets and those years where they stumbled and the Flyers got the best of them in 74 and 75. Um, but they were a terrific team. So I would say Jerry Cheevers. I, yeah. I really enjoyed the mask. Yeah. I enjoyed everything about him. Mm -hmm. And he was a money goalie like Billy Smith. The good part about your story is the, I'm sure the neighbor's window who the stick went through probably understood completely why you did it. Not really. I mean, oh, no? no they not really. Espo they, fans. I think they liked me before Espo. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I, was a, I, I like to think that I was a nice kid. Yeah. And, uh, they understood why I was upset, but they, yeah. you know, mom and dad were angry. Yeah. I, I got grounded for about a week, and we paid it back and all that. But anyway, that was a great moment in history. I figured they put the armor on you and go get yeah, it. I'm no, not happy you no. did it, but I understand why. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> so, um, you're a Springfield kid. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of people that are listening to this live in major league cities, mm -hmm. but they don't live in minor league cities. Mm -hmm. So, growing up, even before you worked for the team, right. How important is is having a team like the I guess the Kings at one point yeah. and the Indians? How important is having a team like that for the community? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and and a lot of people haven't asked that. And so I think growing up in a minor league town gave me an understanding for how the game works. So back in those days, um, they used to sell the hockey news as a as a vending item with popcorn, peanuts, and they used to actually yell it out, hockey news. And I, I my dad would buy it for me. 
and I would read it cover to cover. But I loved reading about the secondary leagues. Mm -hmm. And then I learned about the junior system. I learned all of this stuff as a teenager. So I had a, I had kind of a, a, a built-in knowledge when I went to work at it. Yeah. And then another thing happened too, in 84, 85, when I was an intern, before they hired me full-time in Springfield, the project I had to work on was the 50th anniversary team of the Springfield Indians slash Kings, okay? And I was aware of all this. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I just, went at it with all my heart and soul, and I think I did a really good job with it. I had to get the guys in, I had to coordinate the balloting, I had to do the big night, they let me host it on the ice. You know, there's a lot of things there. If I didn't grow up in Springfield, I wouldn't have known. Right. And I worked with somebody at the time who moved on, and he was from St. Louis, and all he knew was the National Hockey League because he was a Blues fan. Mm -hmm. He had no idea how any of this worked. So I saw a lot of guys come up, a lot of guys come down, went through the World Hockey Association and how that almost put the AHL out of business. Yeah. And so I understood the framework of how the business worked. And so then when I had a chance to like interview people like Emil Francis and things like that when I was working in the American Hockey League, I had a historical perspective of where they were in their careers and how it all happened. Yeah. And I remember the, the cat, uh, after the interview was over, said, how do you have any idea who any of these guys were? Well, because my mom told me to read. I read all the Fischler books. Mm -hmm. I read everything that had anything to do with hockey. The libraries, that's where I would go. And then I paid attention, and I knew how the system worked. I think that helped me. I think that helped me a lot. It's funny because you say that, and I talk about nowadays. I'm, I'm. My wife calls me a cranky old man because mm -hmm. I, I always say back in the day, back in the day. Yeah. But like you say, talking about the back of the hockey news where you're reading the stats and everything, yeah. the juniors and the minors. I love doing that stuff. Like oh, I yeah. love putting the work in. Mm -hmm. Every week you get the hockey news, and and like I said. I knew about the Springfield Indians, I knew about the American League, but it was pretty much at that point just words on a page before right. I was able to watch Ringside. Right. But I love doing the research. I, I absolutely love doing that. So I think we're, we're similar in that respect. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you're, you're, we're around the same age, so I, I, we're the same generation, basically. Right. So um, I totally understand what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, because there was a mystique to it. Yeah. And like in the, the old Pacific League, Central League, yeah. Dallas against Tulsa, yep. mm -hmm. and all these things. It was yeah. like, wow, what is this? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I think we came from a different era where yeah. everything wasn't known mm -hmm. and you had to really dig. Yeah. And I it left a lot to the imagination. I love doing that. Like yeah. I, I remember uh, when they had the team in Indianapolis, when yeah. they had the checkers, but I was a little bit younger. Yeah. But really when I got to age where I was like voracious about it yeah. is really when they, they put the full affiliation in Springfield, well they split it with Minnesota for a bit, right. and when they completely went there, that was like my ripe age for like just, right. I couldn't get enough. Right. So I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, so you do have some Long Island ties. You did do yeah. some uh, some college work here at Adelphi. How did. Did that, how did that come about? So I was uh, wondering how I was going to go from a, I was a, a physical education major at Springfield College and I wanted to coach in high school, and how I was going to take this experience broadcasting and also maybe work in pro sports. And in, in 1983, uh, sports management had just become kind of a new field. Obviously intriguing because of the glamour maybe attached to it, which doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. but, but that's what a lot of people thought. I, I'm a sports fan, I want to work in sports, and that was driving a lot of people that direction. So anyway, I went to a convention in Providence. A guy named Gary Barrett was in the athletic department of the Delphi University, and he was there. And he just met me and interviewed me, and he said, you know, we have a position you might be interested in. You can come down, it's an assistantship if you qualify, your grades are good enough, you can go to school nights, and you can work at St. Paul's School in Garden City. And it's a, it was a boys' school, and um, uh, you can coach a little bit there. They need some help in the 
the athletic department, and I did. So I coached football, I coached baseball. Um, I did a year there, I lived there. I lived in Garden City, dry for five years, yeah, and, nice. uh, and and went to school to Delphi. And then I, I got to, it's funny because I had it really helped because this is before I worked for Springfield. Yeah. So then when I went to Springfield and worked for them and they had an affiliation with the Islanders, I already had knowledge of the area. Right. And I kind of, you know, it was kind of a, a romantic thing for me maybe, but also with the kids, you know, I knew, you know, where they were going, yeah. you know, the Holiday Inn, the Old Country Road, all, all those <laughs> things, right? I, oh, I, yeah. I knew all these things because mm -hmm. I'd already lived it. Yeah. So I loved living here. It was short. I almost stayed here. Like, they offered me a job. Mm -hmm. uh, but then my internship popped with the Indians, and yeah. thankfully it did. So that was my next question. How did you end up hooking up with the Indians? Well, I just had an in. Uh, actually, my sister knew a uh, secretary that worked for the American Hockey League. Um, and and she knew Peter Cooney, who's the owner of the team, and he was looking for some office help. Mm -hmm. So college intern was something that he was open to because he didn't have to pay him yeah. an extra set of hands. So I went and met Pete. And when I sat down with Peter, who's become a big, big influence in my life, and he's my agent today and all this stuff, um, we sat over lunch and he said, do you have any broadcasting experience? And I said, oh yeah, tons. <laughs> And he never asked me if I if I worked for anybody, if I had a tape or anything. He said, good, because you know, as part of your internship, just work with my guy I have. He's brand new, he's a little green. You can do color for him at the home games. We'll see where it goes. I said, all right, terrific. So anyway, I was referring to me and my dad as yeah. my experience. Yeah. And whatever impersonations I used to do, whatever kind of stuff I used to do to kind of entertain the boys at college parties off the television. Anyway, he gave me a chance to do that, and then he hired me. And I worked there for seven years. So um, I know, I have a lot of friends who work for minor league teams, be it hockey or baseball, and I know whether you're an intern or a full-time worker, yeah. your title is strictly a title. Your yeah. title is one hat, yeah. but you probably wear ten. Yeah. So what were some of the things you did, like people know you as the voice of the Indians, yeah. but what were some of the other duties that you had there with the Indians that aren't, necessarily aren't so glamorous? Like I think you did PR for them also? Yeah, you I, did. PR I did everything. Yeah. I, I did, Joe, I did, I did PR, I did group sales, I did ad sales, I did whatever kind of marketing it was back in those days. I wrote the program. I. Uh, I did all the game notes. I, and in those days, it was a typewriter, and then yep. it became a word processor. You mm -hmm. know, it was still archaic. Um, we had four people in the front office. There was a business manager. There was Peter, who's hands-on. He's there every day. There's Bruce Landon, who's the general manager. Mm -hmm. There was me, mm -hmm. and then there was a part-time person who worked in group sales, and she sold group sales on the side, and she was kind of a quasi-full slash part-time person. So anyway, that was the, that was the front office. So yes, I did everything. Yeah. The first thing I ever did for the team was. There was a, um, a hot dog uh, restaurant called Zab's, and uh, anyway, they were giving away free hot dogs, and I had a rubber stamp the back of every ticket Is that right? for opening night, which was 7,449 <laughs> tickets, but maybe 4,000 people came, but every ticket had to have a stamp, and it was not a machine for this, it was me. Mm -hmm. It took me all day, and that's all I did. I just yep. kept stamping the tickets the first thing I ever did. Yeah. But I did all kinds of stuff, manual labor for the team, all the travel. It gave me a tremendous amount of experience that I could use later on when I got to the National Hockey League. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, the biggest thing was that Pete sat me down one day and said, uh, tell me about your, your broadcasting philosophy. And I went through all this crap and then I said, you know, this is how I prepare and I put a lot of time in it. He said, stop right there. I don't care. Yeah. And he was a former announcer himself. And I said, what do you mean you don't care? He said, that's the bottom of the list, man. You can be the best broadcaster ever if you don't do these other jobs and do them well, you're not going to work here. 
And one of those was selling. Like, yeah. I, and I hated it. I hated mm -hmm. ad sales. But I had to go out and try and, and generate some sponsorships for the team. And, mm -hmm. and then I might have an hour to prep for my game, which was yeah. important to me, mm -hmm. but not in terms of where he looked at it. Right, right. That's tremendous. It's good because it seems like all... Your, your answers are so amazing, they just go one into the other of my questions. So talking about all the duties you had, uh, in 1988-89 you won the Ken McKenzie Award. Yeah. And this award honors the individual who accomplished the most during the season in promoting his or her AHL team. So, yeah. I mean, you just went through all your duties. Yeah. So it's no surprise. You know, it, well, I, I was you know flattered by that because a lot of guys who had won that um, Previous to me, had already gone on the broadcasting careers in the NHL. That's where I wanted to go. I thought that would really help me. Um, yeah, I remember when they told me about it. They brought me to the league meetings in Portland, Maine, and, and I got the award there. Um, it, it was nice. But I mean, that, that is just a byproduct of passion. Yeah. I had no idea that was going to happen. I had no idea I was doing anything right. I love my job. I still love my job. I love hockey. That's it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why those things happen. So, uh, like I mentioned to you before we started recording, one of my favorite parts about doing this is, is doing the research. And as an announcer, you, uh, most announcers who, who are established have catchphrases. Yeah. And you have a bunch of them, but yeah. I think the one you're most known for is the, hey, hey, what do you say? Yeah. And I had known, obviously known that for years, yeah. but up until a few years ago, I never knew where that originated yeah. from. And I think it's a great story. So could, yeah. you, could sure. you tell us where that came from? Sure. So it's a tribute to my dad who died in 1985. <coughs> he died on um, January 12th, 1985. And, um, you know, again, he was my best friend. He, I got married in 86. He was going to be my best man. Um, and he was my color guy when I was growing up. And he used to say that. And so he used to just say it when he met you or if he was coaching kids baseball or whatever, he would say, hey, hey, what are you saying? So when he died, it was the first day I got a paycheck. And I came home from the game. We played Rochester that night. I went out with my fiance. And we went out in the town. I came home. She was sleeping over the house. And uh, she went down the basement. I went to my room. And anyway, I was awake around 5, 6 in the morning by my mom. My dad's aorta person who died suddenly. I gave him CPR and everything. I was, I went to Springfield College with PE, so I was certified then. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't, you know, I lived with that guilt. I thought I should have saved his life. I didn't. Uh, it took me about two years to reconcile where I was going. I almost didn't get married. I, I really had a, I really had a tough time with that. Yeah. And I was on buses a lot. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I was just thinking a lot. Yeah, time to think. Yeah. You're by yourself. I was you know. thinking a lot. And then you go have a few beers, mm -hmm. and you know, you go down a road there that could really lead you in a bad spot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, why did this happen? I was 22, taking care of my mom. My mom was old school. She didn't know where the money was. She didn't know how to do a checkbook. She didn't do a lot of things. I took over a lot. And I was going to get married, you know, in 86. And we ended up doing it and all that. But anyway, it was on a trip either to Hershey or Baltimore. I know we were going south. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to use the phrase tonight. There's a big goal. Yeah. And I did. And it was just a tribute to him. And then as time marched on, I figured out you know what, I'm going to use it when I think the game's over. Yeah. And and I did. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the team won the Calder Cup in 90 yeah. that a reporter asked me, what is this? Oh, and I right? told the story. Oh, wow. And the Springfield Daily News, they wrote a piece mm -hmm. on the hey, hey, what do you say? Yeah. And so I kept it, and I did it. And then in Hartford, you know what, when I when I first got the job and people get used to me, you know, fans, they don't know. Yeah. And writers, the media critics, they would call it hokey. They, they, and I just took it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't say, hey, it's because of my dad. I yeah, just, yeah. Until somebody asked me again. Right. And then right. I said it. So, yes, mm -hmm. 
It's a local broadcast thing. I don't use it on NBC because it would show favoritism, right. but it's, it's strictly for the Canes now. When I think the game's in the books, I use it, but it's always a tribute to him. Well, the most important thing in my life is my kids. I love being a father, so yeah. I love that story. Too. I love it. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, once you become, once you do this for a living, you may not have a favorite broadcaster. But even growing up, was there one guy who was your like I? I had told you like I love Mike Emmerich. I yeah. love Jiggs McDonald. Yeah. Did you have someone that you loved to listen to? Yeah. Well, I I would say uh, originally Dan Kelly, mm -hmm. and then from Dan Kelly, Fred Cusick, who did the Bruins yeah. for forty years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then as I got older, I, I think the guy, uh, Jiggs and, and uh, Barry Landers. Yeah. Barry Landers was, yep. was good to me. Yeah, Barry, Barry he was the radio voice yeah. of the Islanders, if Barry, you're too young to remember. Yeah, that. Barry Landers was really a great man mm -hmm. and was very good to me. Yeah. And they gave me a couple chances to come up and do radio with him. And, uh, and Jiggs was first class yeah. and still is to this day. When I get a nice comment from Jiggs, it really means an awful lot. And I watched him do Butchie's uh, ceremony last week. Yep. It was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just an unbelievable hockey man, unbelievable talent. And so that was different because I was working and Jiggs was what I wanted to get to, you know? And, uh, and he knew that and he was always encouraging. So he has a special place in my heart too. But I would say those are the guys and I think for whatever reason, I tell young announcers this today, um, and this came to me by accident, I didn't really um, try to be somebody. Yeah. You know, and I mm -hmm. think that's a mistake in our business because yeah. whoever that is has already done that. Yeah. So if there's somebody out there who likes what I do, and I, a couple of the young guys in the league have said that, I've always said that I'm really flattered, but please do it your own way because I've already done that. Yeah. And I didn't try to do what Dan Kelly did, but I that came by accident. Yeah. It just happened. So yeah. I think it, 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 that happened for a reason. I tell people, you know, like one of the things I was going to say to you, but I'll say it to you now because we brought up Jigs. Uh, for someone like me who was raised on Islander hockey, my Islander memories are all narrated by Jigs McDonald. Yeah. So for you, that has to be a pretty cool feeling knowing that the, the hockey that you introduced to the people in, in uh, Carolina, North yeah. Carolina, yeah. you're the narrator. All the memories they have. Right. are narrated by you. Right. That has to be a pretty cool feeling. That's the best feeling. Yeah. And it, 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 it blows away any national yeah. recognition. It, it's the reward. And I've always said because it's Carolina, it's different because it was brand new. Yeah. And so if you're the voice of the Leafs, you're just carrying on a legacy. Right. If you're voice of the Hurricanes, you're starting from ground zero. Yeah. And so when I went to Hartford originally, I was just coming in after Rick Peckham. Yeah. And the Whalers kind of had this flashes of this and flashes of that and some not good stuff. And it was just kind of being a steward. Yeah. Whereas with with the Hurricanes, you're kind of like, you know, the, the, you're on the ground floor yeah. of it. So it's totally different. And it's something I always think about when there's potential change maybe. Yeah. is like, you know, do you, do you really want to change after all this time? Right. It's a long time that I've been there. Yeah. yeah, and like I said, we've had, um, you know, there since Jake's, it was Howie Rose, and now we have Brendan Burke and everything. But I'm, I like romanticize things, so all of my memories are, are older. Yeah. And you know, like it's just, I know, like to me, Jake's is royalty. Yeah. You know, he is just royalty, and I'm happy that obviously people in Springfield yeah. will always remember your voice. Yeah. But now you have a larger audience. Yeah. You know, you have all of the North Carolina and everything, and I guess they, if they put the games in South Carolina, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. Um, and even now with satellite. Right. But That's for those, yeah, yeah, for those fans down there, you know, there there are 
there's probably 30 year old men, men and women now that say, oh man, I remember John said this, and, remember, and then there's five year olds right now, yeah. that 10 years from now are gonna say, man, I, I, my first memory is this goal yeah. and the way that John described it, so I'm, I'm happy for you. I can't tell you the joy yeah. you get from that. Yeah, that's People tell you that, it's an amazing reward for this. So you've done both play-by-play -play and color commentary. Mm -hmm. Which do you prefer? Play-by-play. Play-by-play. Yeah. Is there a reason why? I just love it. I mean, I, to me, it's just again you're carrying the, the cadence of the sport, and I think hockey play-by-play -play is different than anything else because your voice can carry the emotion of the play. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the other room and you hear, you know, uh, my voice start to, to go up, you should understand there's probably a, a chance coming here, there's yeah. a scoring yeah. chance or something. So I think there's a there's a romantic side to it. Um, yeah, and, and you know what, color was good because I could fill in the blanks. But there's only so far I could go as not being the next player. Right. So ex players have a, a big time advantage because they've been in those shoes. Yep. And I think that's the best the best thing as far as a real good analyst is somebody who's been in the shoes who can forecast something before you see it. Because we all can watch it. Yep. And we all can regurgitate what we just saw. Mm -hmm. But the real good analysts in all sports today forecast something before it happens. And along those lines, you've also done both television and radio. Yeah. So, obviously, for television, I'm watching the game and hearing you describe it. But on the radio, whether I'm yeah. in my car or like we talked about with Barry Landers, when I was a kid, there were years we didn't have cable. Right. So, I'm in my mom's bedroom listening to right. the stereo, Barry Landers and John Potvin, they're describing the game to me. Right. I can't see it. Right. Which did you prefer? Which do you prefer? If everything's even? Yeah, like money-wise, everything is even radio, television. Radio. I, I knew you were going to say everything's that. even yeah. radio, mm -hmm. and I loved doing the conference finals last year, radio only, yeah. the Raleigh market. Mm -hmm. So after I did the Islanders series for NBC, first round Tampa, Columbus, Carolina, Washington, did that for NBC. Now conference final, I did our local games on radio. It's tremendous because you're really painting a picture. It's it's exactly it's it's, it's raw. It's true broadcasting. Yeah. Television is great. It's different because it's your producer, director, it's a whole bunch of people yeah. that make it happen. Mm -hmm. In itself, it's really rewarding because it's more of a team. Right. Radio, it's just you yeah. and your partner, but it's really just you. Right. Right. You're painting, you can say anything. Yeah. Whereas in television, there's an art to it. If you've done correctly, you, you, you're saying something, but you're playing off the visuals. Right. And you're interpreting a graphic so, as, uh, so that you're adding a little bit more to the graphic than just reading the graphic. Right. And there's an art to doing that. Mm -hmm. They're both rewarding. Right. But if everything's even, there's nothing like doing radio. And I would think most guys in your position would probably say the same thing. Because I think for someone who's achieved as much as you've achieved, it's not a, it's not a job, it's not a career, it's a passion. Right. And I think if you have the passion for it, you like telling that story. Yeah. That's what I would, I would think. Of. Absolutely. So, um, is it true that you once had a tussle with the Sherpa Canadians mascot? That's exactly right. Well, how did that go down? So, I mean, I try to be a nice guy and respectful, but we're in the uh, sports palace, Palais des Sports, and the playoff game. And uh, it's the same year, I believe, that Milbury, Mike Milbury, had the issue with the organist in, in that place. <laughs> mm. um, the organist used to play, um, they had a player, Steve Tajura. Yep. Remember him? Yep. And so he's a really good player, Canadian-born, Japanese descent, I think yep. he was. Yep. So, Every time he came on the ice, they played Japanese music. On the that, I didn't know that. And Mike went berserk. Yeah. And it was a small rink, about 3,000 seats, so yeah. he had to go up about 20 rows. And he left the bench, he went up 20 rows, and he got into a tussle with the organist. And 
same that same season. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. My thing happened in the playoffs. This this thing that looked like the uh, Expos mascot, you know, what the Canadians use now, whoopy type yeah. guy, sat down on my on my little perch there in that little box. It was like a, an enclosed box that they gave us to announce games from. And I couldn't see the corner. I couldn't see the goalie. I couldn't see down to my right. Yeah. I asked him once, please move. I asked him twice to please move. And then the third time, he gave me a little gesture. <laughs> and I'm calling the game, and I couldn't see. And the fans started you know, taunting me and everything. Oh. So I got mad, and I, I punched him. Yeah. And he went down. The security came. This is in the middle of the game. I was going to say this is a little during middle the game. Of the playoff game. And I kind of <laughs> said what happened. And yeah. I'm not standing for it. Yeah. And the, the tribe's here to win, you know, and all kinds of things. Anyway, yeah. I wish I had the tape of that. <laughs> that but, would be amazing. Uh, but that is a true story. So as I told you, I did reach out to some former Indians, yeah. try to get some John Forslund stories, and to your credit, that all to a man, they all love you, and they said, uh, basically I think Vern Smith summed it up, said he was too smart, he stayed away from us. But Vern Smith did tell me to ask you about one thing, uh, the Arby's promo that he did with your nephew. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, he said ask you about that. Yeah, I think, yeah, my nephew was like, uh, we, had a, we had to have a... Um, yeah, we did a photo shoot with Smitty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my nephew was about eight years old, and yeah. he was the he was the uh, subject, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah, there you go. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. that made you smile. Yeah. So, um, before we get to the individual Indians, I have to ask you about the wildest thing I had ever seen for Springfield. And obviously, you have seen a lot more oh, than yeah, I do. I know so, if this is not the craziest thing, then let yeah. me know. Yeah. But, and thank, thank. Thankfully for YouTube, everybody can see this now. I'm talking about the brawl between uh, Springfield and Fredericton. So first, is this the craziest thing you had ever seen as the voice of the Indians? Bar none. Yeah. Okay. Bar none. Right. And so, <clears throat> look at the head coaches that were involved in that. Claude Julian, Mark Crawford, Todd McClellan, Bruce Boudreau were all players at the time. Yep. Um, Ron LaPointe and Gordy Lane started it in the alley between the two benches, the two coaches. It went on for 20 minutes. There were four or five Pier 6 brawls. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't stop. It's ugly. Guys' heads were split open. Uh, yeah. One of the best goalie fights ever between Marty Wakeland and Ron Tugnut. Yeah. And I called it and went berserk. Yeah. And it's my voice before puberty. <laughs> so it, it lives now on YouTube. Yeah. 1987. Yeah. And, uh, Gordy got suspended for five games. We lost all five games after that fight. And then Gordy Lane came back. And he was eligible to come back the fifth after the fifth game. The loss was in Glens Falls. Mm -hmm. And I was doing the post-game show. And as I'm doing the post-game show, I see our guys coming back on the ice. And Gordy had a practice after the game. And so I did the post-game show, and I said to Indians are coming back on the ice. I packed up. I watched them practice for an hour. We went to the locker room. He had a around the ring uh, type discussion with every player had to say what was wrong with the team. We yeah. got out of there like at one in the morning, went to the hotel, drove the next day to Sherbrooke. And there was a fork in the road. And I'm in charge of the travel. You go to the left, you go to Montreal. You go to the right, you go to Sherbrooke. And so the bus he's going and he starts to go to the left. Yeah. And I'm like, sir. Yeah. He's French. I'm like, we're going the wrong way here. And he's like, no. And I said, Gordy, Sherbrooke's over there. Yeah. We're headed toward Montreal now. And 
Gordy, you know, in his way, just said, you know, relax. And he took the boys out at the night out of the town. Oh, that was nice. In the yeah. Montreal barbecue yeah. garden for dinner, yeah. a little uh, bar scene yeah. afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Sherbrooke, and then they won 7-2. Nice. And he, he, was a, he was a great guy. Gordy. I know when I, uh, great guy. when I had interviewed Mick, we talked about Gordy. Yeah. And we talked about... Uh, when Mick had played with the uh, Islanders his first game when he got um, faked out by Tiger Williams. Yeah. And Tiger went and scored the goal. Yeah. And then he said when he went back to Springfield, he said Gordy taught him a lesson. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just hear the reverence in his voice yes. about, you know, about uh, Gordy. And, I mean, on the island, we, we love Gordy. Yeah. You know, you love the guy. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear the story like you tell and hear the stories that the ex-players have. Yeah. So. Before, one more question before we get to the individual guys. So one of the, the coolest things about the Islanders being affiliated with Springfield um, and you guys being on TV a lot was when the, you guys won the Cup, 89-90, a cup, I think a week later they broadcast the game here on Long Island. And not only did they broadcast the game, they broadcast the entire post-game celebration. So we saw all, all interviews. the interviews. And, um, I mean, everything was. I still have it on VHS at home. Yeah, right. I have the whole thing, and that was so much fun. So before we talk about the individual players, just talk about that season and the road to the Calder Cup and ultimately winning the Calder Cup. I mean, obviously, for myself, especially someone like you, um, Jeff Rolacek. Yeah. I mean, he's. Yeah. I mean, what? Just well, talk about the combination. Like I never knew scored yeah. until afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because there was no announcement made. Right. And it was a tip. I thought McBean had the goal, but um, yeah. So that season was not supposed to happen because the team wasn't very good in the front half of the year, and Jimmy Roberts was frustrated. And um, I think I have the, the the Super Bowl correct because I think it was the year uh, Buffalo lost. Uh, to the Giants. To the Giants. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, which I hate that. <laughs> Salt in the wound. So was a, that was wide right, I think. Yes, it was. Okay. Yes, All it right. was, unfortunately. So, Jimmy and I are in a sports bar in Baltimore, mm -hmm. and it's a Sunday afternoon. We played in Hershey the night before. We didn't play the uh, skipjacks until Tuesday. Okay. So we had a practice day on Monday, so we had a free day. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy and I went out to a sports bar, and it was just he and I, very few people there, watching the Super Bowl. And he had put me in his... Um, his golf club had a, a box uh, type thing for the for the Super Bowl, the numbers, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we put in some money anyway. We won. Oh, okay. So we won a couple thousand dollars. Oh, nice. It was a big, big thing. And anyway, we were, we were happy and all this. We watched the game, and then Jimmy said, we're going to make the playoffs. And I think the team was at least 20 points out of a playoff spot in January. Okay. Go Bills! And they made... That's right. <laughs> they, they, made, they made a trade. And what they did was um, they traded Bruce Boudreaux. And Bruce was a very popular player and a signed free agent for Springfield specifically. Yeah. And we had we had really marketed this guy a lot. He was a night for him. He was like the Crash Davis of hockey. Yeah. So we made a trade and we got Paul Gagne, Derek Laxstall, uh, Jack Capuano from the Newmarket Saints and Bruce Boudreaux. That trade, Cappy didn't play much. Gagne and, and Laxdahl did. Yeah. They changed the dynamic of the team. Hackett got red hot. The team had great chemistry, great individuals. Tommy Fitzgerald, Mark Bergevin. I mean, this was a, a, a Dahlman, Kushner. This team had character through and through. Robbie DeMaio. Anyway, 
they started winning and winning and winning. They won one game in Utica against Tommy McBee's Devils. They trailed six to one going into the third period and won seven six in regulation. They scored a goal every other minute. It was it was it was, it was that's the biggest best comeback I've, I can remember. Mm -hmm. And then they went to the playoffs. No one gave them a chance right until the end against Rochester, who was a talent-laden team with a lot of money dumped into it. Uh, they flew, Buffalo yeah. flew them, Springfield in the final yeah. round, we had two buses. <laughs> and so, yeah. it was a storybook. Yeah. And, it, and it was also a year that Springfield was rumored to leave. Yeah. And I remember going in that overtime, you recall the call of that, I said that, you know, this this could be it. Yeah. And we didn't know what the future was. I didn't know if Cooney was pulling the plug in the team or what was gonna happen, and they won. And then the next year they followed up with a different affiliate and run it again. Yeah. But the 90 team was spectacular. Yeah. Spectacular. So now we're going to talk about some of the old Indians from the Islanders affiliations. Um, so you can answer with one word or 20 minutes. Okay. It's your call. Okay. And I'm to not show any favoritism, I'm doing it alphabetically. Great. Okay. Bob Bassett. Bobby Bassett was... Um, Oh, so serious, such a hard worker. Um, you know, there was a mystique about kids that came from Western Canada. It was like, you know, they were they were tougher. They they had the longer bus rides. Um, he was all hockey. He um, was he was a terrific. Uh, I just think of the word diligence. He was yeah. a diligent worker yeah. and uh, respectful. He was respectful of me. Yeah. Um, Sean Byron. Byron was a character, mm. um, just like a, this kid that came off the farm, happy-go-lucky, um, the brunt of many jokes, yeah. took them well, a uh, big, strong kid, didn't develop into what they probably thought he would be, another Jethro, be another Clark Gillies. Yeah. Um, I know what they were looking for, it just didn't happen for him. His son's a remarkable player, he's got a great NHL future. Um, but he, he, was, uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. Um, a guy who you only were affiliated with for a short period of time because uh, he joined the team late, I believe, Kevin Sheveldayoff. Yeah, and he was injured. Yeah. He had a significant knee problem and it really curtailed his career. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, but uh, Chevy was, uh, again, the Islanders, uh, Bill, Tex Eamon, yeah. um, Earl Ingerfield, they. they Burt Marshall, they they might not always have got the best players, they got the best people. Yeah. They drafted character. Yeah. Like it was all character. Mm -hmm. And it was sometimes frustrating for Jimmy Roberts at the end there because he wanted a little bit more talent. Yeah. But we didn't have a lot of skill. They had tremendous character. Yeah. And and Chevy's that. Oh yeah. And and so it's beneath to he didn't do much in Springfield, mm -hmm. but I remember him well mm -hmm. because of his size and he's just a big, uh, strong Kid. And then his management career has been fantastic. So I love seeing him, and I yeah. wish him all the best. I mean, I, I say this, you know, like uh, for Islander fans of a certain age, we had the um, three first-round picks in a row was um, yeah. was Dean Chanel, Chevaldeoff, and Chizowski. Yeah. And I think on the surface, some people say, well, they were busts. Yeah. Some people say that, and yeah. I say, well, I don't think so. And no. I say, if you look at look at where they came from in junior and what their role was then, and what their roles were here. If you just look at numbers, yeah, and I think a lot of fans are guilty of that, where they just look at the numbers, they don't look at intangibles, they don't right. look at other things, where, you know, Chevy's case, it was injuries, right. okay? Um, and with Chizowski, I think they may have 
may have rushed him too soon. He did. Okay. But with someone like, like uh, Dino, who's my next guy that I'm going to ask you about, yeah. um, when he played, he was solid. Yeah. Okay. And as far as a coach goes, like you talk about the way they drafted guys, Sheveldayoff is an amazing general manager, and Dean Chanel is one of the top coaches. Yeah. I mean, so these are these are hockey intelligent guys. That's right. Um, so, like I always say, well, you could say what you want, but you're wrong. And like I said, you had two drafts in a row where you have arguably one of the best general managers in the league. Yeah. And if you look at Dean Chanel, he went right from playing, right from playing to coaching, and he's been in different leagues, and he's always successful. Right. You have to remember for the fans that this isn't easy. Yeah. And when you have identity, it's it's hard to attain. Yeah. It's easy to lose. And the Islanders had identity and then lost it. Yeah. And they lost it because they panicked. Mm -hmm. Because when they were great, there's going to be a price for being great drafting-wise. Mm -hmm. You're not getting the, the Trottiers, the pop bands. I mean, they had to be bad to get those guys. Yeah. And so, but they were still drafting the same type of character people. Absolutely. And that was the key, and that's mm -hmm. what we saw. And Dino's one of those people. Yeah. And Dino, you know, had this understanding of the game from his dad, knew how it worked. Yeah. He had a bunch of talent, uh, stood up for his teammates, mm -hmm. loved life. It's the same person yeah. today. Yeah. The same person, only with different life experiences, and a coaching resume now. Really smart. Um, he's got that big smile. Yep. He loves life. And that's what I remember. I remember when I see him and I see him laugh. Yeah. I remember him when he laughed as a kid mm -hmm. back in you know, 1987 or yep. whatever heck it was. Yep. So, that's what I see today. No, I love him. He's one yeah. of my favorite people. Great, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love him. Uh, Kerry Clark. Old Sharky. That was uh, <laughs> the Moonwalker. Um, fantastic. You know, tough, tough uh, hole to be placed in when you're Wendell's your brother. Yeah. Uh, Wendell Clark was a rock star. Yep. Wendell Clark was uh, John, Paul, Ringo, Jordan, all of them, all four of them in Toronto. Yep. And uh, in those days, boy, because, you know, we didn't have a lot of exposure. When you were that big as an icon in the National Hockey League, you were probably larger than you actually were. Yeah. And so Wendell was Wendell. He's known by his first name, right? Yeah. And there's Kerry, Wendell's mm -hmm. brother. So I always had that. But he fought so many battles for his teammates. Again, was a caring guy. Stepped up for me when I asked him to do things in the community. Always did. Um, loved playing and uh, and had the, had the guts to do that moonwalk, yeah. which I encouraged him to do. Yeah. And uh, he could back it up. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fight. He had some of the best fights with Kenny Baumgartner. I tell you what, yeah. they were titanic matches. Yep. They were great fights. And, and for people who've listened to my previous episodes, that's a name that always comes up with yep. a lot of these guys that I interview because they came from the Western League, they came yep. from the American League. Is Ken Baumgartner? Yep. And I think people that that saw him maybe towards the end of his career where he was still effective, they really don't understand oh. just how he. The word that everyone uses is terrorized. He terrorized the Western League. He terrorized the American League. Yeah. I mean, he was a force. And, and for Islander fans lucky enough, like myself, to have has seen that, so his tenure here, yeah. uh, he was unbelievable. Yeah, he was. You know, so for guys to stand up to him yeah. and, you know, not be intimidated, um, like you say, Sharky, he wasn't intimidated by anybody, you know. So I'm pretty sure that he, him and Wendell probably had a couple of bouts when they were kids. I'm sure they in, did. In Kelvington. So. Sure they did. Uh, well, this is sort of, I guess this is sort of a loaded name since I now found out he's your agent, but I know yeah. Peter Cooney is synonymous yeah. with the Springfield Indians. Yeah. Um, so just talk a little bit about Peter. Great, great influence yeah. in my life. Um, confidant, uh, mentor when I was younger, 
And then after he sold the team, he decided to get in the agent business. But the thing about Peter is, you know, um, he's very successful, he has some wealth, and he didn't have to go into the agent business. He could have done something else, or he could have just, you know, rested on some laurels and, and figured something else out. But he wanted to work in hockey again, and he wanted to go to bat for the underdog. So if you look at the clients he's taken on, uh, Andrew McDonald, fans here will be um, familiar with, Joel Ward, um, uh, Trevor Gilly. I was just going to say Trevor yeah, Gilly, I mean, Trevor Gilly's I mean, agent. We're I mean, very familiar with him. Right, <laughs> Michael Haley today. Yeah. I mean, you, you go through the, the list of, of kids he represents. This Connor Garland in Arizona, who's a 20-goal scorer. They're, they're, they're not the can't-missers. Yeah. You know, they go to Don Meehan and, and the Bobby Orr group and, and all of that. He takes the lower level, he takes ECHL kids, um, he gives them a chance and he goes to work for them. And basically he just came to me and said, you know what, if I can help you, I'll help you. This was way back in the 90s. And, and today, I, you know, we have a great relationship. He, he works on my behalf. Um, luckily I'm at a stage in my career where my work kind of says it. Yeah. So he just, uh, I just have him verify everything as we go along. But uh, he was a great owner. He was an old schooler. He cared for the players. Yeah. Uh, some of the players probably didn't like how frugal he was at times, yeah. but when he had to step up in the playoffs, he, he bought more team dinners, he treated those players correctly when they were winners, and we had sensational runs to the Calder Cups. Yeah, I, I, uh, Trevor Gillies, we spoke about Peter a few times. I yeah. know how, much, how high regard he holds yeah. him and how much he loves him. So, yeah. um, Someone who was a teammate of Ken Baumgartner's and Prince Albert, Rod Dahlman. Yeah, Dolly was uh, a gamer. Again, I, I, I say it over and over again. The one thing that I'm, I'm really grateful for in those years is how respectful the guys were towards me, and they didn't have to be. Um, but they all were. Yeah. And, and, and Dolly was one of those guys. And uh, the tougher they were, it seemed like the more respectful they were. And, uh, and, and, but he, he played the game uh, in a way that um, it wasn't just the fighting. You know, he went to the net hard. He paid a price. He was injured. He was a he was a borderliner. He he could have played. Yeah. He could have played. He could have had a longer NHL career. I really believe that. A lot of the guys, especially someone like Mick Vakoda, who they were very yeah. close. He says if he was a couple inches taller, yeah, 10, 15 pounds heavier, yeah, he would have been a force in the NHL for ten years. Because he would have scored. Yeah, more. Mm -hmm. he would have been like Cam Neely. Yeah, he, he would have he would have been able to score, and then he would have he would um, been able to afford himself more space yeah. because of his toughness. And in the hands and everything, you know, that's what happened with Neely. Yeah, you know, he becomes a great goal exactly. scorer. Exactly. So he was a tough guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Neely, Tonkin, all those yeah, guys. Yeah, they get space. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Gerald Diddick. Diddy was interesting. He was. Uh, he always kept me honest. He was. Um, uh, you know, I had a. I had to work hard with him because he kind of questioned maybe you know what I was all about. Oh, yeah. um, uh, because he was. He was really smart, and he had. You know, he had a. He had a stinging wit about him. Yeah. He became a good friend, and, and then we worked together um, in the National Hockey League. You know, he came to Hartford, yeah. and it kind of what goes around comes around kind of worked there. But uh, I remember him being uh, very, very in tune with everything around the game. Yeah. So he was the union guy. He was the guy that knew, you know, he was always making sure the per diem was right. He was always making sure that nobody was getting wrong the, or along the way. He was the union steward. He was. He was one of those types that had his back up against management all the time um, because he was so intelligent. But a good player. Yeah, very, very, I mean, he very had a great player. career. Great Solid career. career. Very good NHL. Yeah. 
Um, the captain, Sal, Robbie DeMaio. Best, uh, really great. Uh, pound for pound, the toughest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, would fight anybody at his size. Um, again, undying worker. Um, amazing. You know, it's funny, he, he went on to just continue to improve. Yeah. A couple things happened for him, the Tampa situation that improved his career. A lot of things happened, but in Springfield, he was a, he was a great leader. Um, I, I just have memories of him, you know, his face being mangled on the bus, yeah. nose being pushed over to one side, yeah. playing the next night, mm -hmm. never took a night off, yeah. played hard all the time, um, and a great person, good friend today. Yeah. yeah. My first experience with him watching him live was a game here, and he fought Al Secord. Yeah. When Al Secord was with Toronto, and I was like, I didn't know, like I said, at that time it was yeah. pretty much the numbers in the back of the hockey game. Yeah. And I didn't know much about him, and I'm like, who's this little guy fighting Al Secord? Yeah. You know, and then uh, you get to know the player a little bit, and he's yeah. more established. And then a couple of years later, he's going toe to toe yeah. with a prime Darren Kimball. Yeah. And I'm going, man, this guy, I just love this guy. Yeah. I mean, I'm always partial to Italian heritage, also, yeah. so I love him. But uh, I yeah, just we called him Sal. Sal, yeah. yeah. So just, yeah. just I, I mean, he's just the guy. I think he's one of the guys that when I bring his name up to anybody, they smile. Yeah. You just have to smile. You have you know? to. Just a, yeah. I, I mean, a, a total warrior. Yeah, he's you know? a great captain. Great captain. Um, going a little old school, Gordy Deneen. Yeah, Gordy, um, that was very early in my career. So Gordy was an up and downer, mostly in the National Hockey League. So um, his brother Kevin I had more of a relationship with. But Gordy was, um, when, when Gordy came to Springfield, he was a, um, he was already a guy kind of up and down. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he had a presence about him. That's yeah. what I remember about Gordy. Uh, Dean Ewan. <laughs> yeah, another incredibly tough individual. Yeah. Uh, maybe to a fault, but he uh, quiet. Yeah. He was a lot more quiet than Kushner, Dahlman, uh, Robbie, even Mick. Mick's, Mick would talk a lot. Yeah. Dean was very reserved. Yeah, I remember, but uh, a lot of respect there. Uh, Dale Henry. Oh, the Colonel. A prominent figure yeah. in the Fredericton brawl. Yes, with Jacques Mayotte, <laughs> yep. head button. Mm -hmm. When Jacques put the thing around, it was like the spirit of 76. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Colonel was a good man and an old schooler yeah. and probably should have played in the 50s. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he was smart. Yeah. He was a smart player mm -hmm. and he was tough. Yeah. So Saskatoon Blades, I think, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he was he was tough, but he was, um, he was also uh, had some hockey sense so he can get around the ring and know where to go to score the big goal. He scored some big goals. You know, and Jimmy Roberts liked him. He really did. Uh, the Moose, Glenn Johansson. All oh, the Moose. Who sounds European, but isn't. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Didn't play that way. Western Michigan? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was a beauty. Yeah. He he couldn't get out of his own way. <laughs> he, he, he was just a happy-go-lucky kid. Yeah. Probably put his foot in his mouth more than once. Mm -hmm. um, he, he got... He was the brunt of some jokes. He was good to me. Yeah. He was good to me, and uh, you know, I, I, he was a big, imposing guy from yeah. what I remember. But that was my first couple of years yeah. with Moose. Yeah, mm -hmm. remember him. Yeah. Alan Kerr. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Now there's a guy. He's definitely playing today. Yeah. A lot. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He, he probably needed just a little bit more size. Um, shoulders weren't great. Uh, good goal scorer. Smart kid, good kid. Um, I thought I was wrong about him. I thought he was going to really make it. 
Yeah. I thought he was really going to make it. A couple times he got called up. I remember conversations with Darcy Regeer, and, and I, I really, more than not, luckily in my career, I've been right. Mm -hmm. I see him enough, and you're around him every oh, day. Yeah. I really thought he was going to really cut it here for a long time. He had a little bit of a career yeah. in the National yeah. Hockey League, but I thought it could have been better. The guy you mentioned earlier, Dale Kushner. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was a wild man. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was a, he was he was wild, and he could really, he he fought everybody. Um, he, he again brought a ton of that Islander character. They just had too many of those guys. Um, that stuff got ahead of his game. Yeah. I think that curtailed his career. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he was he was a wild man. Yeah, I remember. Um, guy we talked about briefly, Gordy Lee. Gordy was great. Yeah. Gordy, I knew was watching him as a fan. Then I had to work hand in hand with him as a coach. You know, he's got the speech impediment. He went through an awful lot in his career. He's very smart. Mm -hmm. I know what the Islanders and what Bill loved him like a son. Yeah. Really tried to help him. Um, he knew the game inside and out. He was just frustrated by the lack of talent he had on the team at the time, right. the newness of coaching, and he couldn't stand to lose. Yeah. And I think he didn't know how to put losing in a compartment. At some point, Joe, coaches have to, they hate losing, but they have to recognize that sometimes the losing is just part of what they do, and they have to know how to take the losing and make it a winning environment. Right. The only way to go through that is to lose. Right. And a lot of guys can't reconcile it, and Gordy could not reconcile losing. It was getting in the way of him progressing as a coach. It was frustrating him the next day. It would linger in the next day. He couldn't make the next day better, because he hadn't gotten over the game before. Right. And, and But he was a first-class guy. Yeah. And, uh, Treated me very, very well, and uh, I like Corey a lot. Um, with another guy we briefly touched on, you talked about the trade with Derek Laxdahl, the train. Yeah, the big train. Mm -hmm. Good player, um, had a great, good, good career, um, going to be a good coach. He is a good coach. Yeah. Um, but he was a thinker, and I think he and Paul Gagne, that's why that trade made such a difference, because they, I remember uh, Jimmy Roberts, who uh, was one of the most influential people in my life. I mm -hmm. uh, miss him every day. Um, but he would talk about hockey sense. I had no idea what he was talking about. But he, he had an idea of who was smart and who wasn't. Yeah. And, and Derek was a smart player that had a nose for the net and scored some huge goals that year. Yeah, which probably explains, actually we, we talked about him uh, when I just interviewed Brent Severn, who does TV work for Dallas, yeah. and now you know Derek is a, a right. coach there right. now. And, um, you know, we basically said he's done all he can do as far as coaching in the minors. Right. There's really nothing left for him to do. Right. So this is the natural progression, and it's only a matter of time before he's a full-time head coach and yeah, job. I think he will be. Yeah. yeah, I think he will be. He's a perfect uh, demeanor for it. Um, someone I talk about with everybody, uh, I'm, I'm actually honored to call his mother a friend, is uh, Duncan McPherson. Yeah. Yeah. Tragedy. Yeah. And, and um, great kid. And um, he was wholesome. Yeah. And, um, and it's just a, just a shame that all of that happened. Nothing anybody could do at the time. Right. And, and uh, I never got to know his parents. Uh, and I watched all the video on it after years afterwards and everything. Yeah. But he, he loved life. He too had some real knee troubles mm -hmm. that stunted his growth as a player. Yeah. He had all kinds of potential. Mm -hmm. One guy who I didn't see much of, and he was probably there towards the beginning of your tenure there, maybe the middle, um, and there's not a lot out there to read about him, is a guy named Mike Neal. Yeah, Mike Neal. 
<laughs> wow, even you don't see that. Yeah, I can. I could yeah. have number yeah. three. Yeah. Um, quiet. Yeah. Good-looking kid. Mm-hmm. Um, had had a lot of potential. Never realized. I just don't think he had the burn. Yeah. From what I what I remember, mm-hmm. I don't think he had that internal drive a lot of these guys did. You know, get the mile. Miles Ticker was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, another guy that is a, has a hockey pedigree, hockey family like Dean Ewan and Kerry Clark is a Gordon Paddock. Yeah, Gordy was a, a quiet guy. Um, you know, John, his brother. Um, you know, Westerner again. We had so many Western people, and, and uh, um, you know, like a cowboy type. He's like a he's like a cowboy type. And uh, uh, I saw something on the internet with Gordy Paddock recently. He, in the Hall of Fame for baseball. Yes, yes. He mm-hmm. became a youth baseball coach yep. and like a huge Canadian baseball yes. coach. That's right. Amateur yes. ranks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never knew that because yeah. I would have talked to him a lot about baseball back in those days, but uh, he was very quiet. Yeah. But he was a steady player. Um, one guy who I slipped my mind when we were talking about Chevy and Dino as far as um, hockey intelligence and, and, and um, an executive type role, Chris Pryor takes a backseat to nobody. Oh, man. Sarge. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. One of my favorite people. Yeah. Another one, if you look at him, you probably don't like him. Just looking at him, because he's intimidating. Yeah. He looks so serious. There's a teddy bear inside. Yep. You got to get to know him. Mm-hmm. Real smart. Yeah. Uh, new people could size you up, figure you out, uh, stood up for his teammates, limited a little bit on the ice, always felt he was being wronged by the North Stars, <laughs> always felt he was being wronged by the Islanders. Probably right in some ways, yeah. um, but look what he did with his career. He's a great scout, yeah. uh, assistant general manager, um, hockey through and through, and I, uh, he's a great friend. Yeah, I'm still in touch. I love him. Yeah. I love him. Um, I should probably get comfortable because the next guy on my list is someone who everybody smiles about, Jimmy Roberts. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> next to my father, that's the that's the one guy that had a big influence. So so professionally. So my dad. Male uh, role model molded me as a man. Jimmy molded me as a hockey person. Everything I know today, I attribute to Jimmy. Yeah. Because Jimmy, I was a sponge. Jimmy taught me everything I needed to know. Taught me about the old days with communities. Taught me about systems. Taught me about how we ran practices. Listened to me. And I was like, what do you listen to me for? Like, he would ask me opinions on players and games. He said, why? Because you see it from a totally different perspective. Yeah. And I like what you say. And we had these conversations. We became very close. He helped me get the National League uh, job. Um, we stayed in touch over the years. Um, just, a, just a wonderful guy. And he was hard on his players, but his players loved him. Yeah. Most, most of them. Yeah. Some guys probably still... Uh, you know, he did a either tough thing like for Dean Chanel when he scratched him for the final game of the Calder Cup. Mm-hmm. After he played 17 games, game 18, he took him out and he told me that morning, I told Dean all this, just the other night we were talking about it, um, and I don't know if he believes me or not, but Jimmy called me and he said, Chanel's coming out. I said, why? He was coming out, Hank Lamond is going in. He said, and Johnny, mark my words, he'll make the National Hockey League because of this. If I don't do this, he might not have a chance. He's too uncomfortable. Wow. And so I was like, okay. And so he did, and I think he held it against Jimmy for a number of years. I don't know where he is with that. Players don't reconcile these things, right. no matter what happens in their lives. Right. So um, anyway, Jimmy was uh, was remarkable. He was uh, just a uh, just a wonderful man, and uh, I'll never forget some of the lessons I learned. I don't think I would be able to do what I do today if not for him. Yeah. I mean, he means that much to me. 
with um, people with Springfield with Springfield ties. Um, I always ask them about Duncan, and I always ask them about Jimmy. And then one of the people that I spoke to recently was Jamie Rivers. Yeah. And Jamie uh, had Jimmy as a coach in yeah. Worcester yeah. and in St. Louis. Yeah. And just you just hear how people talk about him in, in, with such reverence yeah. and like you said how you know just a role model male role model everybody loves this man right so you remember sean evans yeah so sean now is a junior a coach in Truro, nova scotia mm -hmm. you talk about a small world so he, he's been coaching that team the bearcats where andrew mcdonald played for 25 years mm -hmm. and jimmy had a big effect on his life you need to adjust his life off the ice. Yeah. He needed to become a better remember, person. Yeah, I remember he this. Yep. He battled alcoholism. Mm -hmm. He got through it. He became a tremendous American League player. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of a cup of coffee in the NHL in Europe and so on. But anyway, he devoted his life to coaching. So Jimmy was like a father to him. Yeah. Okay. So my son, and it's a long story, I don't have to get into, but ended up making his team and playing junior A hockey in Truro, just outside Halifax, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And he called me one day and he said, Dad, we just had the Jimmy Roberts practice. And I said, what? He goes, the Jimmy Roberts practice. And the kids come in, and John has done this for years. Mm -hmm. They come into practice one day a year, and there's a pamphlet in their stall, and it's Jimmy's biography. Oh, and they have to read about Jimmy Roberts. And then Sean puts on the wool gloves and the hat and runs the practice where they don't, like Jimmy used to do no puck scrimmages. Mm -hmm. You play without a puck. Yeah. And you can do whatever you want. Goalies are making saves and guys are scoring at the same time. <laughs> they don't have a puck. Yeah. And anyway, he teaches them a few things about Jimmy. And I just thought that was a, a small world type thing where my kid ended up playing there for him. Yeah. And then the Jimmy Roberts thing came around. It was, it was kind of strange. That's a great thing about hockey, though, because I think I, I can't speak for the other sports, even though I'm a baseball fan, I'm a, I'm a football fan. But in terms of hockey, it always seems like there's a lot of those things there where if you're, if you're someone like Jimmy who has influenced so many people, yeah. you're always going to come back around. Yeah. And now let's say your son was going to go on to do something in hockey, right. especially at a coaching level. 15, 20 years from now, right. he may be doing a Jimmy Roberts practice. Well, I'll tell you what, because he's, he's on a path that might lead him down that road, yep. he'll be on, Sean Evans will be the guy. Yeah. Because he says that's the best guy he ever played for. Right. And he's taken all those experiences because they ran their team so well. Mm -hmm. You know, at the college he's at now, he's like, we don't even have a culture close to what we had in Truro. Right. He said, and I'd like to run a team someday that has that. And that all came from Jimmy, yeah. which came from the Montreal Canadiens. Right. So it's like, you know, you're right about that. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, the guy we talked about already, Vern Smith. Yeah, Smitty was great. Yeah. He, he uh, and still is. And so he settled there. He settled in that area of the country and um, good looking guy, yeah. um, a lot of talent. Um, I bet you he plays today. Yeah. I bet you he would have played today because I think he was just viewed, <clears throat> he wasn't afraid to mix it up. Yeah. But I think they viewed him then as maybe because of his size, he had pretty good size. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he should have been a little bit tougher, yeah. um, but he could move the puck and mm -hmm. he could make a first pass really well. And um, he was he was a really again a respectful guy. I mean, I don't you know the memories I have of these guys, the way they treated me, yeah. is all first class. Yeah. Like I didn't get ribbed. I wasn't I wasn't looked at as an outcast. I could have been. I was just mm -hmm. the announcer for the team. Um, they were good to me. Smitty was front and center. He was excellent. Another guy with the hockey pedigree, uh, the kid brother, Mike Stevens. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, the cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, um, he was a 
good player. Yeah. Um, he, he just, he couldn't put it all together. Yeah. Um, but he was quiet, mm-hmm. and he had the glasses, and uh, uh, he was a little bit more introspective than most. So he's a little bit different that way, but yeah. uh, uh, it was good to be around. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if we saved the best for last or the most colorful for last. Mick Vakoda. Yeah, Mick was. <laughs> Mick was special for all the reasons the fans remember. Yeah. But Mick was, um, for me, a go-to person because he would help me in the locker room with other guys. If I needed guys to do things, he would lean on and help Johnny out. Yep. Um, he was the first guy to do community stuff with me. Mm-hmm. I needed to go to the hospital, son, and Mick came. Mick did everything. When he came here, he did everything. Yep. It didn't change. So whatever the PR department asked him to do, he did. Yep. And he was uh, so understated and so gentle for such a guy that was a terror. Yeah. An absolute terror. And he had pretty good hands for his size. Yeah. And and uh, but he is a. I wish him nothing but the best because he paid a price. Yeah. He paid a price to do what he did. Um, but I can't reinforce Joe enough about how nice he was to people. Yeah. How nice and genuine he was with the fans, booster club parties. Yep. He was loved. Yeah. And then when he got here, it didn't change. No. And so it got even better. Yep. He was the same person. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever changed. No, he's the same goofy kid he was I don't in Springfield. I don't think he's I don't think he's ever changed. No. And um, but I, I listen, I was I was a twenty four or five year old guy trying to work in this business. Um, and I had a lot of demands I would ask the players to do or interviews and stuff like that that would help me and it wasn't easy yeah. and it wasn't at a time like we have today where you know they were they, they might not be as nice today some of the kids but they recognize because it's a business they right. have to do these things right back then they were nicer yeah. but they didn't have to do it exactly I'm not gonna do it I'm talking to your tape recorder you're nuts man yeah. you know I'd go to Nick I said give me a pride give me one interview this year because he doesn't want to do it and yeah would you, would you help Johnny up? Yeah, yeah. He was that guy for me. Wonderful. I think he's that guy for a lot of guys. When uh, obviously I mentioned, you know, Dean Ewan was my first yeah. interview. He's basically he's a brother to me. Yeah. And we talked about when he played with Mick in Spokane. Yeah. And just about, I mean, this you're talking about his locker room presence in yeah. Springfield. Yeah. This is how he was back then, where yeah. he just. Uh, we talk about you know some guys are quiet, some guys are this, but Mick, no matter what his role was with the team, yeah. He could command the locker room, right? you know, and um, even, um, you know, Mick told the story about the, um, the game against Pittsburgh where they won in overtime in yeah. the playoffs, where he said something in the locker room. Yeah. And, you know, he's in there with guys like Pierre Turgeon yeah. and guys like that, but he just has this presence about him. And it's not anything where, you know, like these are all grown men, nobody's afraid he's going to beat them up. No. It's just, it's a respect thing. Yeah. And whether he's in Spokane or in Springfield or here on the island, he just always had, there are some guys that have it. Yeah. And some guys don't, well, and he know, had it. Yeah, like a, like a story, you know, I'm sure the details aren't completely right here, but I do have a recollection of this. We, we had a big community thing we had to do on a Monday morning at a hospital. And boys knew about it, but they would always forget, yeah. no matter how many times they reminded them. And we were coming back from a long road trip, and we got back, and we had lost like two or three, four in a row, whatever it was, and it was a miserable environment. And I was afraid. I was afraid to have to go back the bus yeah. and say, guys, I need four of you tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. I hope you remember. Yeah. I'm going to look bad. My owner's going to get mad. I might get fired. 
now we've got to convince him. And I remember coming back, and Mick just had his head down. And he picked up his head, and I was standing there, and he looked at me, and he goes, I remember. And I said, okay, so we're good. I'll have three other guys there with me, don't worry. Yeah. Get them back in and get back up to the front of the bus. Okay. Yeah. That, that is just, yeah. that's the guy I know. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. So I'm not and then definitely that's gold. Not that's yeah. gold. Yeah. And so that, that, that's why when he made it, mm -hmm. I was such a fan. And then when he made it, and it was around the same time that I made it up here in my role, mm -hmm. then I would see him, and uh, he never forgot, he loved me, yeah. and uh, they're all like that. Yeah. Very lucky. A lot of the guys I asked you about came from the West. They all came from the West? Yeah, a lot of them came from the West. It's just those old school values and yeah. uh, you know, family values. And that's what Bill wanted. Yeah, yeah. Bill Torrey's greatest attribute among many was the fact he could read people. Mm -hmm. yeah. He could read players, he could read people. And again, they paid a price because they were committed to the same philosophy, they never changed. Yeah. And they were so good for so long, they weren't getting the best, yeah. but they were getting the right ones, they thought. Yeah. And he leaned on Texan a lot. Yeah. It was all coming from one area of the world at the time. Yeah. And then they had the Derek Kings and Dal Carnos and those people, they were all each other's. They didn't have the same fabric no. of those kids out there. They no. really didn't. No, really definitely didn't. not. No, and, and it's fine. I think if you're if you're from up there, yeah, you know. And, and actually, one of the things that's funny is they used to hear. I don't know if you were familiar with it. They used to do a uh, heels and flats yeah. show. I don't yeah. know if you ever saw yeah. it. And then one day it was hijacked by Mick and Ben Waho. Yeah, and they did the Mick and Benny show. Yeah, and they were just talking about what what Ontario, the difference between Ontario and Western Canada and yeah. Quebec. And yeah. it was hilarious. Yeah. It was just hilarious. Yeah. So, and no it's funny you mentioned Quebec because the, the X Factor in that 90 team was Mark Bergevin. Yeah. Who is a, I mean, a well-known personality yeah. aside from having an amazing career. Right. Just the way he is as a person. Everyone says how funny he is and how personable and but everything he, else. So. He, he was the one yeah. <coughs> with his play in the ice. His demeanor off the ice. Mm -hmm. He kept it light. Yeah. He was a team guy, and that team won because of him. And then they won the next year. Yeah. Uh, we got him back in a trade with the, with the Capital District Islanders mm -hmm. back to Springfield. And they won again with him. And he was the one in '90. We were going from Hershey to Baltimore or vice versa. But we were making that trip, and we thought we had clinched, but we weren't sure. We were doing the math in the front of the bus. Yeah. Jimmy, Bruce Landon, Pete Cooney, and myself. We couldn't figure out the magic number. We couldn't figure it out if we clinched a playoff spot or not. New Haven was up in Sherbrooke. We either win or lose or tie or something. We are trying to figure it out. And Bergey figured it out. And he came up and says, we made the playoff. <laughs> we made the playoff. And we're like, what? Yeah. He goes, yes, I did it. You, you people are stupid. <laughs> and so no wonder he's a GM, yeah. right? So <laughs> he should have known that. Yeah. Oh, man. John, this has been amazing. Me uh, this too, is Joe. This Fun. is everything that I, I hoped it would be. I, I mean, this is... I could listen to you talk for hours. The stories you have are just gold. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate thank the time. My so pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, John. And um, that's it, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Have a great day. Once again, a million thank yous to John Forsland for taking the time to chat with me. Um, John, I, I, when I was doing my research for this interview, um, and you just plug in John's name to Google, um, he is uh, very generous with his time. He, there is so much uh, information out there uh, about John, from John, because he's so generous with his time. And uh, for him to, um, you know, talk to a ha uh, ham and egger like myself uh, really means the world to me. So, uh, John, thank you very much.
And for, um, for the listeners out there, uh, obviously getting these guys from that 89-90 team and even uh, before that, the guys who played for the Tribe uh, before that year, but especially those guys from that Calder Cup team, uh, that was always something that uh, I had my, uh, my sights set on and just chatting it up with John about uh, the Indians and especially that team, it just uh, really uh, got me fired up. I'm fired up now a few days later, uh, you know, getting this thing going. So um, it's my promise to you, um, anybody on that Indians team, that 89-90 squad that uh, played a physical style of hockey, uh, I'm going to do my best to uh, get them on the show. Um, some guys, um, I don't know where they are. Um, I'm going to do my best to track them down. And some guys are in uh, positions with the league right now that I don't know if they'd be permitted to speak to me. Um, but I promise you one thing. I will uh, give every effort, every fiber, with every fiber of my being, I give 100% to try to reach out to these guys and convince them to do the show um, because I know that it's something I'd want to do and just based on some of the feedback that I received from some of you, I know it's something you want to hear. So um, because John um, because John has such a reach out there and if any of the uh, old Springfield Indians are listening to this, especially guys from that 89-90 team that may have dropped the gloves or put guys through the boards or whatever, played a physical style, you know who you are. Um, I got uh, my sights set on you. So um, uh, it would be an honor to interview you. And um, please uh, reach out to me. And, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, even if you didn't play on that 89-90 team, if you're a member of Springfield Indians and I haven't reached out to you yet, uh, I will be. And um, But uh, if anyone out there has contacts with any of those guys, uh, reach out to me, hit me up, send me a message, and uh, hopefully we can get it arranged, and uh, hopefully I'll do their careers justice. So um, I don't have anyone lined up for next week yet. I have somebody who I'm going to reach out to tomorrow uh, to see if we can chat it up this week, and uh, I've, he's done some interviews. He doesn't do a lot of interviews on uh, nowadays. Obviously, uh, he's retired. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, but I know he said he would, uh, he would talk to me. So um, I'm going to reach out to him, see if we can hook up this week, and uh, I'll have that for you. And um, if not, I'll, uh, I'll figure something out. You know, uh, I know that you guys can't go a week without hearing my melodic tones, but um, no, obviously uh, that's not true. But uh, I will uh, hopefully be able to hook up with this guy, and um, that's about it. So... I want to wish you all a, a, a great week, and um, I hope you enjoyed my chat with John Forsland. And uh, UX Springfield Indians, I'm coming for you. So check your email, check your text, answer your phone. It's me. Let's do this.